Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Kelly Herring to the show. Kelly is the CTO and co-founder at Charm Industrial, where she leads the engineering team developing their pyrolysis and gasification systems. Prior to Charm, she led the early upper-stage design at Astra, a small rocket company, and the mechanical design at Planet for their constellation of Dove satellites. Kelly, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Kelly, thank you for joining. Kelly, where are you currently located? I'm currently located in San Francisco, California. And how's the weather out there? Um, it is great today. Sunny, uh, kind of the normal temperatures, which is like low 60s or so at this time of year. Sounds like typical SF weather. Yeah. <laughs> Can't complain. I know it, right? It's almost like that year round. I remember being on a project there back in 2012. I was doing a project in San Jose for four months and I was just shocked at the consistency coming from Dallas, that is. Every Monday I'd land there and you kind of know what to expect. High 50s-ish, low 60s, middle of the day, mid 70s and 80s and the entire four months, it was the exact same thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's always interesting when new people come to San Francisco. And even when I moved here for the first time, I moved here in like June or July, and you expect this summer weather, and then it's like low sixties, and you have to go buy yourself a jacket. Um, <laughs> but I've I've quite enjoyed as much as you don't really have the passing of time that comes with seasons. Like sometimes I forget how long I've been here, but um, <laughs> it is it is quite nice to have this kind of consistent weather all the time. It is. So Kelly, I like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Hmm, let's see. Um, well, so when I was working on um, the rocket at Astra, I was doing some of the structures design for um, the spacecraft team. And one of the things that my colleague and I did was we made the entire engine structure um, the structure that holds the engine to the bottom tank of the rocket, um, we made it pink and purple, which I think is pretty unique for uh, the space industry generally. You get a lot of blacks and whites and silvers, but not a lot of pink and purples. So that was that was a fun activity. That is very unique. Tell me more about the making of a rocket. Yeah. So when I was at Astra, the intent was to kind of build these small rockets as similar to like you'd build a Cessna. So um, as inexpensive as possible, using very iterative approach. And so we actually designed, designed and built a rocket in just about a year, the first rocket of that company. Now they're on, I think, rocket 3.2. Um, so I'd be, I believe that's like five or six um, in their rocket suite. But we were there for the first year of the company. And it was, it's basically, I, what I found is that rockets are, are basically a lot of plumbing with engines attached. So you have um, these two large tanks and some structure to hold them together, some area to hold the satellite and the, um, 
and the upper stage of the rocket up on the top and then an engine structure on the bottom. And uh, there's a lot of interesting problems in, in designing that rocket from structural problems to thermal problems. I also designed the um, liquid oxygen downcomer. So taking the liquid oxygen from the top tank um, down around the bottom tank to the engine bay, which was a really cool project for me because I hadn't done with, uh, dealt with any cryogenic like thermal design before. And this long tube could extend on the order of inches um, due to the thermal, well, sorry, not expand, but shrink on the order of inches once it got cold enough due to liquid oxygen. So that was a really interesting design problem and fascinating new experiences coming from the satellite world to the rocket world. What was the purpose of these rockets? Yeah, so the rockets that we were designing at Astro were basically intending to take small satellites to orbit. And so those small satellites might look like the satellites that I worked on at Planet, which are small CubeSat um, size satellites, about the size of a shoebox, actually. And they can launch a few of them. They're expanding capacity as they kind of go through the different iterations and upgrades of their rocket. But it might be able to take a few of those small satellites to orbit for um, either companies or universities who might want to not like piggyback on a larger rocket, which is what typically how typically uh, CubeSats go to orbit. They are kind of extra weight on a much larger rocket, but you don't have a lot of opportunities to choose your orbit or to um, decide exactly yeah, the altitude that you want to go in space. So these are to serve those types of clients effectively. I hear about all these satellite launches, and I think Elon Musk is working on one right now with his space program launching satellites. Do you have any idea as to just how crowded the space above us is getting with satellites? From what I ha have been reading and, and hearing, it's, it's getting quite crowded. But in lower Earth orbit, which is where a lot of the satellites that planet is operating, um, I'm not actually sure off the top of my head right now where Starlink is, which is the Elon Musk's uh, internet satellites that you were talking about. But everything in lower Earth orbit eventually comes down due to the drag of the atmosphere. So it's it's a couple of years that they stay up there, but it doesn't remain as space debris. Um, so that's comforting to know that eventually it will burn up in the atmosphere and we can kind of continue that cycle without collectively adding stuff to, to orbit. But you do have a fair amount of rocket bodies and things that end up in higher orbits that take much longer to come down over time. And one last question. I promise I'll get off this real soon, but I'm just fascinated by this. Yeah. You mentioned the satellite coming down and burning up. Do they all burn up or do some have like planned landings? I think the only things that have planned landings are things like, yeah, like re-entry events of much, much larger structures. So whether or not that's like a rocket launch where a fairing is coming down or, um, or like the first stage, for example, as we start landing different first stages of rockets now. But a lot of the smaller satellites and the things that are in orbit are actually designed to come down. You work with, with you work with NASA to basically do a plan to show that every one of the pieces of your satellite is not too big um, or made of certain materials that won't burn up in the atmosphere. So you can basically prove that you can't hurt anyone when they come down. I really appreciate the insight. I'm going to switch gears here and go from satellites to your current organization. Can you give the audience an overview of Charm Industrial and your role there? Sure. So Charm Industrial has a mission to basically reduce global CO2 concentrations to 280 parts per million or pre-industrial era levels. And we're doing so through a couple of different methods. Um, but at a, at, a, at a glance, it's really that we're scaling this uh, production of this liquid called bio oil, and we're scaling it to three new markets. First is um, 
the carbon removal market. And this actually just happened within the last year. So I'm excited to kind of get into um, how this has progressed over the last year. But basically, people can choose to purchase negative emissions from us where we produce bio oil. And then we take that bio oil and we actually pump it underground into um, different types of wells that will permanently sequester the bio oil out of the biosphere um, on the order of the 10,000 years that we would hope for in terms of carbon sequestration. The other markets is that we can actually take that bio oil and convert it to syngas to decarbonize certain industrial processes like green steel production. And then we can also um, clean up that syngas and then turn it into, for example, uh, industrial hydrogen and then serve the decarbonization of industrial hydrogen markets like refineries or ammonia production. What is syngas? Yeah, so syngas is basically um, a mixture of gases. So the it's majority carbon monoxide, hydrogen, carbon dioxide, methane is usually the general mix there. And Certain uh, processes prefer certain carbon monoxide to hydrogen ratios that will help them produce different things. Like for steel, it's the direct iron reduction process that produces green steel, like a certain amount of carbon monoxide and a certain amount of hydrogen for the energy for that process. And generally, the the bio oil that we are, are making, we're producing from biomass. And so we're actually taking waste agricultural um, products like corn stover or wheat straw that's typically baled and then used for things like animal bedding or or perhaps it's just burned for, for fuel or heat, or it's um, just left to rot on the field. Sometimes it's used for regenerative agriculture, and we definitely want to maintain that as a thing that we're doing generally for the climate and for the future of our agriculture in the U.S. But we're trying to use as much of the excess of that to produce this bio-oil product that we can then use to support other industries and how to bring down emissions from them. And of course, without giving you any trade secrets, can you share how you get from the let's say, corn stover to bio oil? Yeah, so uh, corn stover or wheat straw is usually left on the field after the corn and the wheat is harvested, and it dries out a bit on the field, and then it's usually baled and uh, sold to different people. And so we basically take that bale, we then chop it up into finer powders, we might dry it a little more as needed, and then we insert it into a reactor that does this uh, reaction called pyrolysis. And pyrolysis is basically just the decomposition of of things in the absence of oxygen. And so um, the cellulose and the lignin and the different products that are like the different concentrations that are in biomass or or plants effectively are then broken down into basically long chain hydrocarbon vapor in a reactor. And then we condense that vapor into a liquid. And then that liquid is effectively bio oil. And so people have actually tried to produce this um, bio oil for many years now. Pyrolysis has been around for maybe, I think, 40, 40, maybe even 50 years. And they, it hasn't really taken off, unfortunately. And, and that, I think, is mainly due to the fact that people have been trying to make it an alternative fuel. And bio oil itself is actually, it has a high water content, something on the order of like 25 to 30%. And then it also has a high oxygen content, which isn't great when you want to try to burn it as a fuel. And so something different that Charm is doing is really saying perhaps the the important part of this bio oil is not the concept of it as a fuel replacement, but rather the concept of it is like utilizing it for its carbon content. 
And so by putting it back underground, we're effectively closing the oil cycle. So uh, oil is burnt or fossil fuels are brought out of the ground. They're burned. They produce the CO2 in the air. Plants take that CO2. They use it to grow, obviously. And then we're taking those plants, making it back into an oil and then pumping it back underground and closing the, the full cycle there. And just to give an idea to the audience, how much waste or bio waste is available? Let's, let's talk about here nationally for you to scale. Um, there's quite a bit of um, of waste agriculture right now, so I want to say it's on the order of at least a gigaton in the year a year in the U.S. Um, but I think it's on the order of like 14 gigatons per year um, globally in order to scale in that respect. There's also purpose-grown biomass, and we've explored that a bit. Um, purpose-grown biomass is basically like creating biomass that are that is very high yield that is solely for the purpose of generating. Um, this bio oil. And we want to be careful to make sure that we're not replacing uh, land that would otherwise go to food production, or we don't want to take down forests, for example, to produce this purpose-grown biomass. Um, So right now we're going to target those waste agricultural processes. But um, in terms of scaling, you could see a future where some combination of that and and purpose-grown biomass might be able to support us in scaling that further. You're a relatively new company. Where did the idea for the company come from? Yeah, so a few friends and I basically were looking into ways to basically remove CO2 um, from the air profitably and doing so in a way that we can actually say, hey, there's a business who can actually sustain itself on saving the planet from this situation that we've found ourselves in, which is the crippling effects of climate change. And so when we looked through the different options and the different technological methods, there were a fair bit of them that just didn't pass the like base economic test that we were looking for. And then we also were thinking about like, okay, what we're good at, um, at a certain level is taking these like slower industries and kind of peeling back those layers of those large, slow moving industries and really understanding what the first principles are behind them. Um, And then taking those and trying to kind of upend those business models and say, okay, like, why hasn't this worked in the past? We know that plants are one of the best ways to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Like what has happened to bioenergy and carbon capture or BEX as an industry? Like why hasn't it taken off? Are we truly limited by biomass or are we limited by the process or are we limited by the economics? And what we really found was that the economics of the CapEx and OpEx surrounding BEX really has just kind of not really panned out in combination with the price of biomass, the price of operating and and building those plants, and then also like the lack of the offtake, so to speak, or the the purchasers of the final product. And so we've kind of looked at those in different ways. So for example, on the biomass side, when we found that biomass was going to be really expensive if we put down this really big chemical plant, um, mostly because farmers see that you've put steel in the ground and they, that you want their biomass and effectively need their biomass. Um, so then prices can, can drive up from there. And so what we're rethinking on that end is that we're looking at these pyrolysis units as um, like these mobile, almost like combine harvester or tractor type units that can move with the harvest and not necessarily stay in one place for any given time, which allows us to reduce the price of biomass or go to places where biomass might just happen to be cheaper due to a forestry uh, thinning operation or um, an excess amount of biomass in one given spot due to some circumstance. On the CapEx and OpEx side, we're really rethinking that through design work and thinking like, okay, 
how do we make this um, this process overall cheaper? What are the biggest cost items in this process? And how do we work around them both from a process design, but also a mechanical and electrical design standpoint? And then on the, the final bit, which is the how do we make sure that there's people to purchase those? We're really thinking about what those new markets are, as opposed to thinking about it traditionally as oh, we need to sell this bio oil as a fuel. We're thinking, okay, well, we can sell it as negative emissions, which drops the uh, the need for the quality of the bio oil to be incredibly high to be injected into an engine, for example. We're thinking about syngas as like, okay, if we go for industrial processes, maybe we don't necessarily have to get the syngas in this like perfectly clean state. If we think about what, what markets we're targeting and who can accept certain impurities, and then from there, work on the technological innovations that can push the process intensity and the cost effectiveness and the performance of any of those machines even further from there. But we're really taking that iterative approach. So we have something, we know it works, we can understand the logistics around it, and then we'll continually improve that thing over time. You said something very interesting when you first started speaking about the beginning of the company that leads to my next question which is the why behind what you do. But you said that you and some friends were sitting around thinking about how to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Is that a conversation you have often? Yeah, I think I think that's what a lot of conversations that um, if you're if you're kind of watching the the state of the world right now and um, obviously it's it's come a lot more to the forefront with the new administration, but it is something that I think people who have an awareness of some of these major problems that are surround us and kind of live in this world in San Francisco where you're constantly asking yourself these big questions. And I think that's one of the things about living here that's been so fascinating with all of this new these new companies and the tech surrounding this area. You end up having these much more like blue sky thinking of like, we can do anything, what should we do? Um, and I think that can be naive at times, but it also can be really um, exciting and accelerative to push further and to really ask yourself those big questions. I love naive thinking. Let's get back to the why. It seems to be a common thread in your journey. Tell me about the why and why this is important to you and why it's been important to you. Yeah. So generally, like the mission of, of trying to help the world globally and to try to help people through social impact has always been something that really drove me. Um, in high school, I worked on um, women and girls education and social impact really got me into engineering as a whole and thinking about how I could use the superpower of invention to help people was something that just really excited me throughout my entire life. And then once I really learned more and more about climate change and was reached out to about a few with a few friends to start thinking about this, I think it just became so much more apparent how far behind we were and how much we needed to do. And it was easy to throw all of your en energy behind it when you saw that dire problem. And what drives me really, though, is I think thinking more broadly is like, okay, we have this opportunity now to to fix, I think, one of the world's greatest failures, which is not addressing climate change earlier and um, not giving ourselves the time, the time to figure that out. And I want to use that also as an opportunity to think about how we build a company from scratch in this moment where we've really been over the last few years learning more and more about generally all of society's failings for those who are listening and watching. And I'm, I'm just really driven by the opportunity to do better and to think differently about 
how companies are built and how we serve the planet and all of its inhabitants in the way that we operate in this like kind of market driven society. And so, yeah, I think the, there's the tech, which is exciting. There's the engineering, which is exciting. And there's the mission, which is obviously so potent and important. And then there's also the background of like, how do you create this environment and this community around bringing people to work every day to do their best work where they feel comfortable and welcome and empowered and productive. And that also is just like kind of underlying it all for me. When did serving or service become important to you? Um, I think I think service has just always been important to me. It's interesting. I went to I went to a uh, Catholic school. I'm not religious in any way, but my mom always said that um, she kind of let me kind of take my own path, which I'm eternally grateful for. And I was following some friends who were going to um, this Catholic school in the area, and it allowed me to kind of see a different part of the state. I was living in New Jersey at the time. And she always said that she wondered if, if I gathered some amount of like additional service work in that, not that it was necessarily like religious driven, but that the Catholic church is definitely surrounded by like, how do you serve others and how do you help others? And I think just, yeah, my upbringing was definitely surrounded by that, both from different things like Girl Scouts and yeah, the different work in school or um, as I got into engineering, it was engineering for social impact. Um, I was really fascinated by the fact that once I learned that women and girls don't have the same uh, situation as me in the U.S. as they would in other countries, I think my my scope just broadened. And instead of seeing what was right in front of me and the privilege that I'd had, I realized that like there is so many different people in this world who don't have the same things that I have. And why is that? And I think I was just starting to dig deeper into the the differences that are that are there and how do you serve that in ways that are really conscious of different cultures and conscious of different cultures but also like inequities that have existed and I think as a woman I've felt particularly close to it but I'm also extremely lucky because I'm I'm a white woman living in a like fairly good situation and like a decent upbringing and I know that that's not the same for everyone I think that's always been underlying in the way that I want to help the world. I appreciate you sharing that. Let's go back to women and girls. How do we get, or how would you suggest we get more women and girls involved in engineering? Yeah. Hmm. I would say that showing them that there are women in engineering and there's a path for them and really like you can't be what you can't see type of mentality so showing them that there has been so much done by women over the course of like the entire world and society generally, and it just maybe hasn't been as emphasized or as as clearly advertised to everyone that like women have really driven a lot of science and engineering throughout the course of our, our society. And so showing them there are opportunities there, showing that there are people like them, that they won't be the only... Um, women or girl in the room in a in a project like that. So I think having a little bit of a critical mass in any given space can be really comforting for someone who can feel otherwise kind of alienated in a given um, environment that maybe they're really interested in, in the content of the environment, but look around and they're like, do I belong here? And so I think that I think showing them that 
there are ways to learn and ways to entertain yourself, even as a young child, that can touch upon really interesting engineering topics that isn't the traditional ways that girls have been brought up. So the things around the toys of girls where you think of like dolls and and caregiving and like art, they all, there's a place for that in engineering first off, but also that there's more than that. There's these new toys called Goldie Blocks, for example, where you can have a doll and then that doll can have a story underlying it that is about how she built a tower or a catapult and kind of bringing them in with things that maybe they've seen traditionally in society, but then also exposing them to new concepts, I think is really important. So let's say there is a high school student female that's listening to the show. Could you perhaps give them one or two tactical ideas? They're showing an interest for engineering, but they're not sure what to do next. Sure. I think some ideas would be one to see if there's any groups or activities in your area that might service you exposing yourself to those types of topics. So there could be like first robotics teams or um, different opportunities to build stuff like Habitats for Humanities and things where you can you can do both service work with a group of people. So that might be that might be a great way to meet new people who also like learn different skills and be able to expose you to those skills and grow your uh, toolbox of things that you want to learn and grow into. I think also reaching out to different mentors in your classrooms or your teachers who might be able to, to help you learn more about a given topic that you might be really interested in. And I'm sure there might be some different summer camps. For example, what I did in high school was I was very close to New York City, so I found some engineering programs that were in different universities that were for high school students that allowed me to have a experience learning about CAD, which is computer-aided design, um, so I could actually build the things in a computer that I was dreaming of in my head. And those types of experiences can be really great to just really dig into what what excites you about science or engineering. Is it specifically in the engineering field? Is it electrical? Is it mechanical? Biomedical? Or in the science field, is there a particular area of science that really fascinates you and taking that initiative to go, go seek it out further? really appreciate you sharing that. So from working on rockets to charm industrial, what are some of the most valuable lessons that you would say you've learned about yourself on your journey? I think I've learned that there is a place for the way that I think about the world and about the way that we think about building things and that that if I can find the right type of people and the right environment where I feel comfortable sharing that, then that can be really powerful and that I'm, I'm stronger than I seem in those situations. Um, being a woman in engineering is, is not easy at times, and, but going through each of those scenarios ha- have really allowed me to, I think, mature in different ways. Some, sometimes like you wish that you didn't have to uh, mature in those ways, but it really has allowed me to set groundwork for women who come after me to create companies that I think there are there are comfortable and welcoming places to really expose that perspective. And I mean, I've just learned a lot as an engineer, which has been really exciting for me, changing from the space industry to the clean tech or climate tech industry has this whole new world of, of chemical engineering, which I hadn't really gotten too deep in in my studies and in college. And so knowing that 
it is possible to change those industries without having to go back to school and um, totally reinvent yourself is really exciting for me because you really just have to take those first principles that you learned in school and the foundations of engineering and start figuring out ways that you can apply your background and your experiences to something entirely new. I love the idea about the way you think about the world. Earlier in the conversation, you said the superpower of invention, and I'm going to ask you to tap into your superpower of imagination right now. It's 2030. If Forbes or Business Week were to write a headline about Charm Industrial 10 years from now, what would it say? Well, my dream would be that it says uh, that we've reached a gigaton a year by 2030. That would show that we are well on our way to solving the climate crisis and that we have scaled our systems well enough to basically make them a lot more reachable to all corners of the U.S. and um, brought down the the costs effectively and brought down the OPEX effectively to really scale the entire vision. It also means that the world has been on this track of pushing for climate tech and pushing for carbon removal and really, I guess, practicing what they preach. When we say there's this big climate problem and we have to go solve it, I think we, unfortunately, there's a lot of saying that and not necessarily a lot of actually practically taking the steps to do it. And so I'm really excited to see where this administration goes with pushing for that and actually pushing for the implementation of some of those um, big ideas, but then really excited also for Charm's uh, place in that effort. I'm excited too. It's a great headline. How did the name Charm come about? Yeah. So this is a really interesting one. Um, So Charm, one of the things we were initially looking at, um, so Charm's taken a lot of twists and turns over the years. The initial concept was actually producing biochar from the same processes that we're currently using, so pyrolysis and gasification. One of the other products when you heat up the biomass in the absence of oxygen, besides that vapor, which we turn into an oil, there's also biochar. And so there's a lot of people looking into biochar and its effectiveness as a carbon sequestration medium, but also as a fuel, as a, sorry, as a soil additive, where you can actually provide it to the soil and support further soil growth and soil um, enhancement. And so what we wanted to do was actually both produce biochar for, for soil and those purposes, but also think about how we can visualize like the effects of climate change on a bigger level by using uh, biochar to create these bricks to build a temple to climate change. And this is a really, really early uh, concept. So it wasn't actually the, the, the business concept that, that was the basis of charm, but it was kind of like, all right, what does this look like to build a temple to climate change and build it out of these blocks of biochar? Mm-hmm. Um, eventually it became, okay, well, we can produce biochar, but we'll also produce hydrogen and we'll sell hydrogen for uh, this cost thanks to these subsidies and so on and so forth. But charm comes from char farm. So if you combine that, it's charm. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So Kelly, last question, and you already gave some advice earlier, but if you could share some specific advice or words of wisdom, and it could be professional or personal with the audience, what would it be? Um, I think what I would say is that we need all the help we can get in solving the the climate problem. And what I've heard a lot recently from people is asking me like how they get into climate, like how do I get into climate tech or how do I switch industries? And I feel like there's this 
barrier that just really shouldn't be there. And I'm not sure what exactly is causing it, if it's just natural for people to feel like switching industries is hard. But the climate industry is growing. um, And it's like just starting out, like over the last couple of years, we've really been building it. And of course, there's like the physical and the important implementation of like actually finding a company that you can use your skills. But I don't want that concept of going into a new industry to be a barrier for anyone and for anyone to feel like their background or their experience has somehow led them from led them or stopped them from being a part of the the climate solution and so i encourage you to think deep into what experiences and it doesn't have to be like a perfect engineering experience or a perfect background in marketing or communications that is going to get you there. It's really like, how can you utilize your background and provide value in in this effort to solve this giant problem that we have and to not be held back by the concept of starting a new industry or maybe your background wasn't exactly perfect or how you've always dreamed it would be because it's all important and it all serves you in some way, shape or form. So um, yeah, just kind of keep at it and keep searching for how, what your your part of the solution is. Kelly, I feel like we're very much aligned. We just recently in our South Carolina office have launched an initiative to work with local high schools. The, the initiative is called Renewable Energy for Non-Engineers. And the idea behind it is that we've created this presentation that we're presenting to a small group of high schools beginning in South Carolina. And essentially the idea is to show students that they can get involved in this movement. And, you know, you mentioned finance or marketing and communications, you know, wherever their major or their interest can intersect with this movement is what we're trying to emphasize. So there is not that that whole, you know, hurdle of you have to become an engineer. You can even go to trade school. You can go to community. It doesn't matter what the background is. Like you said, there is a way to get engaged. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, exactly. That sounds like a great program. Kelly, thank you so much. And it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Awesome. It was really great speaking with you as well. And uh, hope to talk more soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com and while you're there you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors bigger than us is a nexus pmg production